0: All right everybody, turn the volume up and grab a chalk bag to dry your sweaty palms. The process is about to begin. Okay, so welcome to episode number two. Still working on this whole intro thing and the vibe thereof, but uh, we're getting it, slowly, slowly. figured out recording in episode number one, and everything else will come in number two. I guess I haven't totally figured out recording, because uh, I recently had the pleasure of talking at uh, Members Night for my local climbing gym, Vertical Endeavors, at Glendale Heights on the outskirts of Chicago here, and they had me give an hour-long slideshow presentation with a full live Ask Me Anything question and answer segment. So, a lot of folks clearly were not able to attend that, because some of you are scattered across the country, and, well, it was a Sunday night, which as we know is the most happening time of the entire week. Anyhow, I uh, decided to record the whole thing for people, and because I am an absolutely genius video editor, I managed to completely botch the import of the video, and it is now permanently lost to the ether. Right. But, um, apparently I've figured out this whole audio recording thing well enough to at least not botch that. So, without further ado, we give you the members night presentation from Vertical Endeavors. Um, There will be a few pauses in here, a little bit of You'll hear little bits of music and stuff like that. That would be where I had videos and such on the screen, which um, unfortunately you're not able to see here. Just, um, just, just you know, imagine something cool is going on. Give me the benefit of the doubt here. And then, uh, yeah, the question uh, and answer part was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming out. Um, this is really cool. It's kind of the first uh, that we've ever done this, uh, having kind of a member presentation highlight. Uh, really cool, though, just because Austin is a great member of the community, but he's also doing stuff that none of us ever, ever going to do. So it's going to be really cool uh, to have this. Uh, but the big thing is that these events are going to be happening more often coming in the future. So if you know anybody that uh, does or looks as great as Austin in that top picture. Um, Let's bring him in, uh, and we'll talk, and we'll do cool stuff. But uh, without me uh, wasting my breath, I'm going to hand it over to Austin, because he's who you're here to see. So let's give a round of applause for Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I'm Austin Howell. I've been climbing for 12 years now. And the unique thing that I do is that I have been free soloing for 10 of those years. Alright, so I think I got your attention now. I <laughs> uh, hope you all brought chalk. I've been told that this tends to give people sweaty palms. Um, so yeah, that's me. That's what I do. I've been free soloing for a decade now, and in the past five years, I've done more pitches without a rope outside than I have with one. Uh, so most of this was scattered around the Chattanooga, Alabama region. So. Um, if any of you guys know Bones, he's working on making a film about me and all this stuff because uh, when you're a person in a new town you tend to have these conversations of hey, who are you? What have you done? What do you like to climb? And holy cow, that's ridiculous. I don't know it's not because before that I did this. That's ridiculous too! Before that I did this. That's, it's not helping! And then 30 minutes later he was just like, hey man, you want to make a film? <laughs> so a uh, quick rundown of what I've done uh, one of the things that's unique about me is I do on-site free soloing, not just regular rehearsed free soloing. I've actually on-site soloed up to 12A. Um, I've on-site soloed a three-pitch 11D. As far as regular soloing goes, I've done a dozen different 512s, ranging all the way up to 12C. Um, a couple of those were in uh, the Red River Gorge. I did five twelve 12As in the Red River Gorge just this season, and... I've done a total of 25 laps. So after I've done one of these solos, I've got that thing dialed in. You know, the holds are old friends and what have you. Kind of the, the, the thing that got me into it is, you know, I think we can all agree that climbing is the coolest thing in the universe. Right? Yeah. Second yeah. only to maybe, like, you know, more climbing. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I first started soloing, we weren't very efficient with gear and stuff like that. If any of you have started trad climbing, um, it's, it's pretty tedious. Heavy gear, a lot of logistics, and we'd only get four or five pitches in a given day. And on my first weekend of soloing, I did 32, and I was only out there for like six hours a day instead of 10 or 12. Um, I also do a bunch of big marathon climbing days, so the only thing better than climbing is more climbing, right? So the, the crowning glory up there is I did a vertical mile worth of free soloing in one day at Linville Gorge, short off Mountain, North Carolina. So this photo here actually happened when I was about 2,500 feet deep already. The cliff ranges from about 300 to 450 foot tall, depending on what route you take. And I did 15 different routes, including one that was a 511D on-site with the crux about 40 feet up. Another was an 11B on-site where the crux was at 250 feet. Um, I also competed in 36 hours of horseshoe hell. So, we, uh, I guess we hate ourselves. And we decided that the 24 hour wasn't bad enough. So, we added the 12 hour competition to it. And um, my climbing partner had a real tough time convincing me to come out. He said, Hey, man, how's it going? It's going all right. I hadn't seen this guy in six years. I knew him from back in Texas. And sent me a message out of the blue on Facebook and said, uh, hey, you want to do horseshoe hell? I said, no. He said, oh, come on. It's a great competition. I was like, I hate competitions. Oh, but it'll be so much fun. There's a lot of free stuff. Nah, I don't, competitions are gross, but we get to climb for 24 hours. Man, that sounds heinous. And he says, look, man, I need you on my team. My partner bailed. And I said, what do you need me for? There's plenty of dudes stronger than me. He goes, I need someone who's a real idiot that can climb 5.9 all day. And I was like, all right, I am a real idiot, and I have done stupid things on 5.9. I've got to give you an audience now. And he says that um, anybody who I could team up with who's been here before already has a partner. So whoever I'm bringing in, they're going to have to do this on site. And the problem with that is to, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a speed competition. Just to hit the speed that we want, we're only clipping one bolt per root. So I need someone who can on-site 5.11, basically soloing, at midnight after 10 hours of climbing. Crap, you really do need me. <laughs> so, uh, and so that's how I got roped into horseshoe hell. And on our first year there, we did 124 pitches in the 12 hour then there was a 14 hour break and we did 202 pitches in the 24 hour for 326 pitches each that's not the team total that's the individual total so we actually became the first team ever to win most pitches in both the 12 and the 24 of the same year not bad for some schmuck that was sitting there on sighting everything Uh, Mark had been there for eight years prior. It was old hat to him, and I basically just told him, like, look, man, here's the strategy. I'm relinquishing all bodily autonomy. You just point at things and say go, and I'll sick them like an attack dog. So uh, ordinary crap. I've done four 13As outdoors. Two of those were second go. Um, I've on-site rope climb 12C. And I've my hardest trad climb was uh, at Sand Rock, Alabama, and it was rated 12AX, which I guess is kind of home field advantage, because um, you were basically soloing it. So yeah, I know. My hardest trad climb is lower than my max solo. Um, seems that I'm really rubbish at trad, and we're, we're kind of working on that. Didn't start off that way, though. When I first started rock climbing, we were just complete and total goobers. I started climbing at the University of Houston and my first time in there we absolutely knew that climbing was about who could go the fastest. <laughs> yeah, we were those kids. So uh, we went in there and tried to see how fast we could climb the auto belay, and it was uh, about a 35 foot tall auto belay, and one of my friends did it in five minutes I did it in, another one did it in, like, three minutes. Another one did it in two and a half. Then I launched up the thing and knocked it out in about 45 seconds, and screw you, man. So, uh, but at that point, so the staff there, they were required to belay people for their job. And so uh, one of the staff came over and said, no, you, come here. She tied me into a rope and explained what a climbing route was. And as you can see, it's got a lot of natural texture on it. So they like to set where you use that natural texture, force you onto tiny footholds so that you can learn skills to take you outside. So about 15 feet up, I was completely flummoxed and fell off. The cool thing was I could tell, so I used to be a swimmer in high school, and I could tell when I fell off this thing that it wasn't because I was too weak. It was because I couldn't figure it out. And I've got that engineering mindset. A problem that needs to be solved is just insufferable. So I had to come back and figure it out. Oh, I did eight. Well, there's a nine next to it. I've got to figure that one out now. And it took me about six months to get to 510, top rope, plastic, about 12 months to get to 11A, top rope, plastic. And at 24 months, I led my first 12A at the facility. And I pretty much stagnated there for a long, long time. So um, when we first got to go outside, the the great joke was we had a climbing competition and I won a rope, not because I was good, but because I was lucky. They had a raffle and they pulled my name out of the hat for the rope bag and everybody laughed at me. (laughs) They knew I didn't have a rope. They knew I didn't even know how to lead climb. Uh, But then, because it was a small comp, small pool of prizes and what have you, they put all the names back in the hat for the big prize to give everyone a chance to win the rope. As luck would have it, they pulled my name out of the hat for the rope. Suddenly, I've got a reason to use that rope back now. And so that was it. I gotta take it and go places. And so this is me out there with that original rope looking cool, just knowing we were cool with our bandanas and everything. When you're climbing, you've got to keep that cool look on your face. That's the only way people know that you're rad. (laughs) Um, So part of what got me in the situation that I'm in now, where I like to go out there and uh, do that freehanding, what with only the fingers and toes, is that I've always had this fascination for being up there, wherever there is. When I was a kid, I was always climbing trees. 40 feet up in the thing. Uh, my friends were playing hide and go seek, and I learned very quickly that no one ever looks up. Man, I sat in that tree for three rounds of hide and go seek. I, I started to feel bad for him. So uh, I got pine cones and started throwing them at him to see if they would figure out where I was. No. Dude looked straight at me. And I guess he was cross eyed or something because he panned on away. You don't see what you're not expecting to see, so they just kept on walking and gave up. And so even still to this day, whenever I move to a new place or whenever I'm visiting a new crag, the first thing I do is find the easiest way up the tallest thing. Because otherwise, you know, okay, you did 5'14". That's taller. That's way more rad. And so in Texas, the tall stuff was Enchanted Rock. Now, Enchanted Rock has some of the best 5'10 cracks in the universe. And oh, man, absolutely the best. So on the left is me uh, on one of the first 5'8s I got to lead. Then this right here is a 5'6 called Cave Crack. And this beloved thing is called Scrambled Egg Sandwich, uh, another 5'10. So the 511s were all these horrible, bold, run-out slabs where they were all done ground up. The first ascensionist had a bolt bag, a chalk bag, a hammer, and a drill bit. So they only got to put in bolts where they could stop to go hands-free and hammer it in. So they didn't put very many bolts in. Sometimes you'd have four bolts in 150 feet. 30, 60, 90. Next one was at 100, so then you had to run 50 feet to the anchor. You're looking at easily 60, 70, 90 foot falls here if you botch it. And look at that. So in the middle is me on Gravitron. It's 511DX. That's the one with the 30, 60, 90, 100. And you look under my toes. It's not much there. And that is James Crump doing the first ascent of the same route so you can see a better picture of how, uh, how steep it actually is. So there's not much. You're just pasting your toe on some forsaken dime edge way out there in outer space, 20 feet above your bolt. And really quickly, you learn that while there might be plenty of situations on this planet where it is perfectly reasonable to freak out, there's none where it's productive. Because you can sit there and freak out, but you're going for a screamer if you do. So, after moving my way up through the 11s, I started looking at the 12s, and the 12s would kill you. We're talking like blind micro nut placements around the corner where you can't evaluate your protection and stuff like that. So, we went back and we climbed the crap out of those 510s. And how many people here have done trad climbing? Yeah. So basically, the how trad climbing works is somebody hands you a bouquet of colored aluminum and says, "Here, put these in when you get scared." (laughs) Yeah, he knows. I did that to him. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's basically how it works. You know, when it's a crack, you can put a piece of gear anywhere in that crack. You can put them in there six inches, every six inches, if you want to. Of course, then you run into the problem that you're going to run out before you get to the top. But you know, if you start to wig out, you can put a piece of gear anywhere in that crack. Well, after a while I stopped wigging out. You know, after I'd done this one particular climb maybe a dozen times, it just didn't really frighten me anymore. And I was about halfway up this 80-foot pitch and my buddy who was giving me a blaze says, hey man, am I here for any particular reason? Huh? Oh. wrong size, wrong size, oh god, still wrong size, right size, yes, quick draw, rope, whew, Ah, oh god, I'm a little bit pumped now, that's gross, Ew. started climbing again, oh, now mostly to the top, I might as have... well, rigged the anchor, lowered off, one, what the heck, two, not even safe anymore, three, the only thing that made me feel taxed was the effort of putting my safety gear in, and, um, Unpopular opinion, nothing safer than not falling. So uh, I gave my buddy the video camera and said, listen, dude, I'm about to do something so incredibly stupid that obviously I'm never going to do it again. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. (laughs) So uh, I gave him the video camera and uh, said, point at this thing, because if you're, don't be an idiot for the camera, but if you absolutely insist on being an idiot, you, you might as well fire the camera up, right? And so, he pointed the camera at me, and I did uh, what was basically my first real solo at Enchanted Rock. Uh, this here is the top of a route that most people top rope, and so they were actually very familiar with this little tableau up here. And then you could just see me scrambling up over the edge, looking cool. It's all about sunglasses and headbands. Clearly, we watched too many Stone Master videos and uh, to be really cool you've got to have good music choice all about that Lincoln Park back then (laughs) and so this is it this is that first solo sped up really fast and so uh, I went around that weekend and over the course of two days I did 32 of my favorite rock climbs around the park and that was a big improvement from doing four or ten in a single weekend, and that—that's uh, the moment that I just decided, hey, this is officially a thing now, and here it comes. Now. you can see it kind of took an eternity to climb that thing and that's kind of what it was all about for me was trying to sustain that moment of just being in the Zen flow of climbing as long as I could now after a while graduated college with three-quarters of an electrical engineering degree that amounts to not much in a pile of student debt So I had to find a job quick, fast, and in a hurry. And I submitted my resume to everything. And the first one that called me back, cell phone tower climbing. If you've ever wondered why your phone is getting absolutely terrible reception, my bad. Probably one of my towers. But uh, in any case, it's amazing how far you can go by not being an idiot, being able to work Microsoft Office really well, communicating, and um, Really, that's all you need. So I ended up working my way up the ladder and off the tower, Uh, did a whole bunch of cowboy stuff, and wound up in Atlanta. And when I got to Atlanta, first thing I wanted to do was find the easiest way up the tallest thing. And right about then is when I got branded with the hat. So I picked up that hat the day before at a gas station in Nashville for about 10 bucks, and I just happened to be wearing it. friend of mine snapped this photo of me, and they were like, what the heck, dude? It looks like you stepped off your newspaper route and just started climbing. <laughs> and at that moment, it was just branded. It was just so, it was too funny. And so there were no cracks around here. It was all sandstone face climbing. So I started off with sixes and eights, and this is a nine plus, and I worked my way up and got into the 510 range of face climbing this time and worked my way eventually into the 11s. And so um, these right here are two of my first five 11s. And there is no point in training. Weird thing to hear me say, because you see me in here grinding it out like training is my religion, but hear me out. There is no point in training, except if we go back to that maxim that the only thing better than climbing is more climbing. Therefore. If something gets you less climbing, that's kind of a bummer. So, as we know via economics and what have you, that there's always the point of diminishing returns. Um, I've kind of noticed that if you look around the universe, the majority of stuff seems to be about 5.11 and under. So if you can do 5.11 in your chosen style, you're doing pretty good until you go on vacation. Now everything's on site. You haven't seen it before. Oh my god, ruined the whole thing. So really, if you can on site 5.11 in your chosen style, the world is your burrito. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to pin it, my chosen style was multi-pitch free solo. So I had to train a long time and very, very hard to get to the point where I could on site solo 5.11 multi-pitch. And about that time, you know, every crag has that one root, that it's like the root that everybody knows. Well, in Sandrock, it was this route called Dreamscape. It was 11 CD, has about a 510 slab in the start, and then it moves to big poles through an overhang higher up. And um, I got to the point where I could, one day I just realized, oh my God, I'm going to solo Dreamscape. Because it just felt absolutely perfect to me when I was climbing it on lead. Like I was having a conversation with people the whole way up. And uh, the day that I soloed Dreamscape, I was running around soloing laps on 5.11s, and my climbing partners weren't even sending them. And at the point that I realized that I was soloing laps on stuff that my climbing partners couldn't even do, I was like, whoa, maybe I've got something special going on here, you know? And I was kind of like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep training and see where this goes. It's, it'd be kind of a shame to neglect that gift. And Here's a little bit of footage from Dreamscape. Moving through thin slab. This is that one that you saw me go hand free on in the intro. What? Oh, don't do me like that. There we go. To about here, maybe? Yeah. So this is also the one that you saw making those big dinos in the beginning. And those are the cruxes. It's just these big long pulls from big long holds. But I had climbed this thing so many times that I had screwed those moves up a lot. Which meant I knew that I could screw it up and keep climbing anyway. And that's kind of what free soloing is to me. It's not this, this statement that I can climb this thing perfectly. But rather I wake up in the morning with the full knowledge that I am a complete idiot. And I'm probably going to mess something up so i have to plan to be able to do it anyway and so that's kind of what the thing is it's i can screw this thing up and still have enough strength and stamina to pull through safely to the top so from there i pushed forward and went out to yosemite where i narrowly avoided flashing separate reality you know our roof back here that's the little triangle block in your roof this is what it was uh mimicked after and Yosemite was working pretty good for a few days we did the uh, easiest way up one of the tallest routes we did royal arches which is five seven 1700 feet in three and a half hours simul climbed the whole thing and when we went to the try for the nose on el capitan things didn't go so good We ended up, due to uh, weather constraints and time and logistics, we had to go up while the route was still wet from recent rains, because it rained just about our entire trip. And I fell 20 feet headfirst into a ledge, fracturing five vertebrae my right shoulder, cracked my skull open, had nine staples in the back of my head. I'm deaf in my left ear and have no natural sense of equilibrium. They tell me that I'll never climb again and have trouble walking. That's me climbing again, 28 days later. So, the crux of this thing was that I couldn't focus my eyeballs any farther than six inches in front of my head at first, and I'd lost my balance. But it turns out that your balance is made from three sources of input. One, is that little thing inside your inner ear. That's what had gone wrong on me. Number two, Tactile response, feeling your body rooted through gravity. And number three is that we all have a few decades of experience of looking at how things orient up and down in space. And so those three inputs give the output of how you're oriented in space. And so um, my number one mission was to not have to pee in that bottle anymore. And so um, started to sit up, and everything would go swimmy, and I would wait for it to stabilize. Then lay down, and wait for it to stabilize. And then I figured out that I didn't actually need a handrail, I just needed to touch something. And so I called it free solo walking, because I was still in that neck brace, and I was trying to walk around places. And I could just tap something, move to the next, and I started. Basically, instead of focusing on what I couldn't do, I asked, what can I do? Well, at first, it was sit up. Okay, let's get comfortable with sitting up. All right, now that we're comfortable with sitting up, what's the next step? Swinging your legs over the edge. Gets a little bit swimmy, so I kept working with that until I got comfortable swinging my legs over the edge. Next step is standing up, walking around the room. Then I went outside, up and down the hospital ward. And so that was the thing. You know, they tell me, I'm not gonna walk again and I'm like whatever you don't know that and so instead of focusing on what I can't do the whole notion instead turned to what can I do and I if they weren't so insistent on putting me in a wheelchair I would have walked out of that hospital um, so on the way out I did find a new hat we stopped my Las Vegas on the way and uh, that thing caught my fancy for sure um, and when I got back to the climbing gym. So it was 28 days later that I went back to the climbing gym and I was afraid on 5'6 top rope. But the funny thing about balance is if you've got two hands and two feet, now that's twice as much tactile response. Plus you're shaking your head around everywhere. And so that helped me. You can think of your cerebellum as like a spreadsheet. It's, it's got all this information. You have your three input values with the output values. And when what you're expecting doesn't match up with what's going on in the world that's when you start to get the vertigo symptoms and so as i was moving my head around climbing i would get those vertigo symptoms and i could just sit there and pause and wait for it to normalize and that's one thing that's important about mental training for any climber is if you have that moment of discomfort whether you know you're on a moderate route and you're on like a slow maybe you see maybe you're like me and you're you really hate slopers and you're on some route that's like a warm-up level and you touch this sloper and you feel nervous you can just slow down at that moment and kind of marinate in it until you get comfortable with it and you can do the same thing with fall practice and anything else like that and so that's one of the lessons that i gained from climbing that i was able to bring into the rest of my life is that notion that anywhere you feel discomfort is possibly an opportunity for growth. And um, I did break my back once before when an individual let go of my rope and dropped me 35 feet, spent four months in a back brace. And I just sat in my house watching videos of Tommy Caldwell. And you know those little squeeze grip masters? I had two of those. So I'd sit on the couch watching Tommy Caldwell till it drove me nuts, I'd stand up, start walking around the house, squeezing that thing. Forearm would pump out, back to watching Tommy Goldwell again. And I just repeated that for four months, because I knew that when I got out, I needed to be able to climb, and I need to be able to walk around campus. So I walked around the house, squeezing the only climbing thing I could get my hands on, and within a month of when I got back, I actually sent the thing in the gym that I fell off of. So they left the route up for me. And um, y'all aren't going to believe what this route was named that I fell off of. It was named Final Destination. (laughs) And so um, one thing that I think a lot of climbers, you know, climbing is a... Um, whenever we get it, Climbing is a big part of a lot, our lives. You know, it's more than just a sport or an activity. For a lot of people, it's a lifestyle. And so when something lays you out of climbing or sets you back, that can be a huge blow that's very, very difficult to see past, especially if you haven't worked through something like that before. Um, and if there's one thing I've found through these cycles, so another thing that happened was uh, way back when I was a kid, some friends convinced me that I needed to do competition climbing and it just I kept losing and it made me so I was an angsty little nineteen-year-old you know couldn't really stand repeated failures like that and I got burned out of climbing for like a year so three times I've had to come back to climbing after severe atrophy and the thing is there's three zones in your climbing when you first start off it's like learning how to walk all over again you know so you're building technique and figuring out how to move and that changes in the space of days and weeks hours even sometimes you'll have breakthroughs and after a while your technique catches up to your physical ability your muscles and so at that point you're building the muscle just as much as you're building technique that part never goes away and but your progress slows down a bit but now you're making progress in the space of weeks and months and then after a while your muscles catch up to your tendons and so really what we're building is tendon strength that's the longest growth phase in your climbing is slowly building those tendons up because they grow in the space of months and years however they don't atrophy so when you get laid out of climbing Usually you're in that phase where you're growing in the space of months and years and that's all you can see but the thing is when you're out for a while Only the muscles will atrophy so when you come back you actually get your growth back to where you were as accelerated You start growing and building muscle in the space of weeks and months again and you actually catch up to where you were a lot faster than you would expect and so it was It was difficult for me the, the second time that I got injured. You know, you figure you get injured once, and you're like, well, everybody's got to pay their dues to the universe. You have one, you know, catastrophe that's bound to happen, and then you're good. You paid that off. And then the second time, it was just like, oh, my God, not again. Um, but one of the things that was key for me coming back from that was just being like, look, everything I was... I'm just letting go that's gone now like that part of me died in Yosemite and let's see what I can be now starting over again from this and that that kind of fresh perspective of starting over again kept me from being very you know it would have been very easy to be angry about what I used to be able to do and to think about the fact that I can't do that Uh, and after my injury in Yosemite six months later I was climbing 512 again outside And one year later, I free soloed my first 512. It is amazing how fast you can come back if you treat your injuries right. Also, the doc tells me that everything after the point where I started careening towards the earth got very, very lucky. If there was a way that you could have injured yourself to come back, um, I got lucky enough to injure myself like that. And so these are some of the things that happened after that point. This is a 12B in Little River Canyon, this is a 12A in Arkansas, another 12A out in um, Chattanooga, that's the word I'm looking for. And this is Twinkie in the red. Some of y'all might be familiar with that one, that just happened uh, in September. So it was a weird thing for me when I went to go solo my first 512, because I had all this self-doubt uh it might seem like it from looking at things like this but the uh, head trip here is that i actually don't have a lot of belief in myself so I, i i'm not naturally inclined to think you've got this man so when i was coming up to this thing i was just like oh my god who do you think you are you're not some sponsored climber you're not alex honnold you're not you know peter croft you're just some random dude what makes you think you can do this but I have this whole pre-flight inspection ritual where I'll try to sandbag myself. So I'll try to climb it with like my worst pair of blown out shoes completely untied with no chalk. I'll hang a whole bunch of crap off my harness and then try to hold a conversation with my belayer while climbing the thing like a stick bug. And if I can manage all of that, then man, take the weights off, put my good shoes on, give me some chalk. I don't have to talk to somebody. That's a whole lot of of margin that I've got, you know, in case something goes wrong. And that's the thing that when I was standing at the base of uh, this route here is called Boy. It was my first 512 solo, and I was walking up to the base of that thing just thinking like, man, who the heck do you think you are? But then in the back of my head, it was like, oh, I've got a process. I've got a checklist. I've got all these things that I have a method about going through these things. And I was like, man, your, your method is good. It, it's always been working. There's nothing wrong with it. That's why you thought this was a good idea. So it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is the method. And then I pulled on, and it just flowed effortlessly. It was no big deal. Um, it was quite relaxed, and, you know, people ask me, like, how do you solo 512? And it's like, well, you craft a set of skills and abilities where soloing 512 feels like the most relaxed thing you could do at this particular moment in time. You know, people like to ask me, like, are you gonna adrenaline? You must be, oh, man, you must love that adrenaline. No. I hate adrenaline. When, when do you feel adrenaline? When you're terrified, like, you know, some kind of life-threatening thing happens. Some car swerves in, you have a spike of adrenaline. Uh, Adrenaline is the feeling of feeling that your life is at risk, and I don't like feeling like that. Um, You know, people, people are like, oh, man, you must have a death wish. And I'm like, listen, man, there's this thing called free soloing, and I really like it. If I died, I wouldn't get to do that anymore. It just doesn't make logical sense. I mean, think about it. And so any time that I have adrenaline in my climbing, so to me, climbing is a path towards peace. Every bit of my climbing, I'm trying to think, how can I deepen the sense of peace that I feel on the wall so that I can change the way that my mind reacts to stress in such a way that instead of going into that panic mode and the adrenaline, Instead, it becomes a, a type of hyper-focus where you get more relaxed and think critically. And it comes back to that notion that I mentioned earlier, you know, um, while there might be plenty of times in life where it's perfectly reasonable to freak out, I have yet to find one where it's productive. And so that's the, that's the notion that I try to work with on myself. and so that's a lesson that has come with me off the wall into my daily life you know we're having a crisis at work or there's some kinda you know my car breaks down and how the heck am I gonna pay for this it might be perfectly reasonable to freak out but I've got that instinct where I know that it's not going to help me and you know you don't have to go you don't have to be this big of an idiot to figure that out you know you can most of the things that I do to prepare for this shoot I do some of them on top rope you know, that's that's a lesson that you can learn from anywhere as long as you have some kind of stimulus that you're working on your brain to overcome. That's something that's, that's um, universal to all climbers and all humans. So, what led me to that mile day? So these are some photos of me at Short Off Mountain climbing um, where I did that mile. You can see the uh, Carolina skyline back there, and I'd heard all these stories of the stone masters in uh, California and what they'd done out there, and all the, uh, like the El Cap in a day was kind of their benchmark that they held themselves to, and so John Backer would go do these days where he soloed like an El Cap day, 3,000 feet of climbing, and I thought, man, I gotta try that. More climbing is the only thing better than climbing, right? And so I went out one day to inspect it, and I showed up at like noon and started climbing at 1 and did 2,500 feet by the time the uh, evening set. Well, maybe that wasn't ambitious enough of a goal to do 3,000 feet, and that's when I pushed it out to the mile. So now this is, um, these are just photos of all the 12s that I've done. So this is a route called First Defense in Chattanooga. That's about, this is 12A. This is Twinkie in the Red River Gorge, 12A. Beddival Pipeline and Bob Marley, also 12A. This one's called Maximus. Completely different style, more vertical here. So typically I like to solo stuff that's super overhung. Because you think, think about like V0. If you have a V0 in in, uh, the slab upstairs, you're on some dicey small holds you have a V0 on the vertical wall, the holds are getting a little bit bigger and if you're in that cave over there, the V0, the holds are ginormous so if we hold the grade constant the steeper it gets, something has to get easier the holds get bigger. Going back to that notion of me being a complete idiot screw up, if you screw up when the holds are that big you just kind of grab harder and put your feet back on so that's why this was one of the more demanding solos of the season, because it's so vertical, you have to be more precise. This is a Check Your Grip at Drive-By. Uh, this one was just last weekend. It was a 12A. that's 100 foot long. It took me 18 minutes to climb it. This is Boy, my first 12. This is Satisfaction. I've actually soloed Satisfaction eight times. And it used to be my warm-up when I would walk into Foster Falls to go meet my friends. So I'd walk in, I'd throw my pack down, pull my climbing shoes out, solo the route, walk off, grab my pack, and then go in to meet my friends for some actual climbing. Because it's like 5'9 blocks to 5'10 to this little 5'11 section, and then like a V3. So you kind of, it warms you up on the way up. Um, and as you can see in this one, there's no chalk bag dangling. I think that I'm in my... Untied shoes again, so I was pretty casual on that one. This is the Lion 12B. This is, I've got terrible footage. This is the 12C that I did, and that's about all we've got for a photo. I pointed the GoPro in like all the wrong directions. And this here is the 12A that I on site soloed. People like to tell me, like, oh man, you, you know, you um, do this soloing stuff, you're so bold. And I'm like, ah, get out of here. The biggest joke is that all I do in my in my time is I'm trying extremely hard to avoid anything that seems remotely like a difficult move. There's nothing bold about that, you know, you check it out beforehand, you make sure that there's nothing you're going to get into, um, but this was actually bold. Uh, that was a heck of a thing. So mental strength, my little philosophy on it. People like to come up to me and ask, so um... You're that free soloing guy, right? Yeah. Well, how do I get over my fear of falling? Speaking as that free soloing guy, don't. But it's, it's kind of interesting there. They, they see something about falling is mentally strong, and something about soloing is mentally strong. But clearly, they're not the same thing. So somebody out there, name a climber you think of as mentally strong. Why? Right? Yeah, she has this inherent trust in her equipment that she knows that she has competently placed it and she knows that it's good fall protection and she has this very strong trust in the system. Give me another one. Someone sketchy. She's not too, she's kind of got the same thing going. She does solo stuff actually, though. Um, so that gets me into the second group of people, like Elaine Robert, Derek Hersey, Mike Reardon, Peter Croft. We have the, do you think any of these guys have inherent trust in their system at this moment? There isn't a system to trust right here. So what they have is very deep trust in their own abilities. That is Alexander Huber soloing a 14A. There's a lot of trust in his ability. So that's kind of my notion about mental strength, is you want to feel safe everywhere that you actually are safe. You want to have that inherent trust in the system. But you also, you know, life is an inherently dangerous sport. So you want to feel safe everywhere that you are safe, and you want to feel solid everywhere that you're not safe. Because while it might be perfectly reasonable to freak out, it's not going to help fix the situation. So you need to have the confidence that your gear will hold, or the competence to know that you can get yourself out of this situation. So, and those two things together give you the ability to venture forth into the unknown. Whether it be the unknown of, where's my next piece of gear? Doesn't matter because I am competent on this type of terrain and I am solid and I can climb up to wherever the I will find that piece of gear. Or, I know that I can reverse my way back down to a safe falling zone. Therefore, I have the skills and abilities required to handle this without winding up over my head. Or, number two, I know that I am inherently safe here and I have the unknown of can I do this move. Doesn't matter. Because I know this rope is going to catch me with no problem. So I can give everything I've got to this move. Has anybody seen the footage of Chris Sharma working on Jumbo Love? Taking those 60-foot falls over and over and over again? He didn't really have trust in his ability to send it that time. But he knew it didn't matter if he failed to send it, because he had that implicit trust in his system. And so on the notion of uh, confidence, people always ask me, what do I do when it goes wrong? And so here we have it, actual footage of a free solo going terribly wrong. So, you know, people, people try to say that this stuff is about send or die, and if you're ever in a send or die situation, uh, you need to really kind of rethink what you're in about. Um, and so uh, that, that just about wraps it up here. We've got one more quick video clip, and then we'll open it up to the question and answer part. And um, as some of you guys might have heard, Bones is working on a documentary about me uh, that should be out January, maybe February. I keep dumping more footage on him, and it's kind of giving him a minor heart attack because he's got so much to sift through. Um, But it's going to be pretty good quality stuff. So this is the second 512 I ever soloed. So, anybody ever heard of John Backer? Famous free soloist from the 70s and uh, probably one of the leading free climbers in the world at that time. This is him soloing. That's the first time anyone ever soloed a 513A. And he was known for soloing 511 at a time when 511 was the top of the grade. That'd That'd be like, Adam Andra soloing a 15A right now in comparison. So he was well-known in the climbing scene for what he did, and one day he was pumping gas at a station outside of Yosemite, and somebody pulled up and saw him and said, Oh, my God, you're John Backer. How do you solo all that crazy stuff? John took the gas pump out of his truck and hung it back up. You're soloing right now. Drove away. (laughs) I love that story because I love that perspective. You know, life is an on-site solo. You don't know what's coming around the corner. You've got to be prepared for it. There's a lot of times where it might be reasonable to freak out, but none where it's going to help you. And so whatever you wind up in the face of, that's it. You're soloing right now. All right, question and answer portion. What do we got? Hold on, I'm, I'm kind of deaf in one ear. What do you got? I saw a post on Facebook. You were talking about something when you're preparing to solo something. You set up some type of figure nine. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you could elaborate. So that's actually something that is new to since I've come down here and been soloing at the red so traditionally all that stuff that um, I had down in the southeast was just what you think of as ordinary free soloing you'll climb the thing grab some holds and top out or um, you saw how there were a lot of horizontals. sometimes I could follow that horizontal to an adjacent route and down climb real easily Um, in the red there's not a lot of things that top out which was kind of a huge bummer because I like to just walk up and start running around like a squirrel and just climb everything Uh, like one day at Devil's Lake I did 20 pitches because everything there tops out so I just top out, walk around, do another one Uh, you can't really do that at the red in a lot of places because the anchor will be halfway up the wall or something and so I've jokingly uh, referred to sport soloing as anywhere that I have to bring a rope to lower myself off And if I'm there by myself, I have to get the rope in place somehow. So what I would do is I would tie a figure nine, which is like a figure eight, but with an extra half twist in it, so it's a little easier to untie. And I would stick clip that to the first two bolts and load it in my grigri. And then I would use the grigri to rope solo the root. So if I fell, that auto jerking of the grigri would lock up, and I had a backup knot tied just in case it didn't. And so that would be kind of my warm-up in the morning is rope soloing that thing. And rope soloing is kind of heinous and scary. So that was another way to sandbag myself was if I could feel comfortable and confident while I was rope soloing it, then uh, once I ditched all that stuff that I was faffing around with, it would feel just that much easier. And so that's pretty much been my experience um, this season is it was it's kind of back to where it was when I did my first solos I expected it to be this casual and it turned out to be that casual and so that's all that's about is just trying to get up the the route the first time in the morning so that I can lower myself off and then what I would do is I would pull the rope and yank my harness up to the anchor so I'd solo the route and I had a strap up there that I would wrap around my wrist step into my harness and I've got those speed buckles so I could just zip it onto me then go indirect and repel off as per normal. What do you got? Okay, so when you're on site soloing something new, have you ever put in your in your strategy or your your, your method a plan for if like there's a loose rock Something out of your control. Oh, yeah, totally. So I get the, I get the loose rock question all the time. And the, the standard answer to that one is we kind of go back to trad climbing. When you're trad climbing, you have to fiddle these widgets in the wall. And you have to evaluate whether they're good enough to take not just your body weight, but a fall factor. And so if you can find rock to absorb the impact force of a fall, so it's pretty easy to evaluate what's going to hold your body weight. But, of course, sometimes you get up there, and it's real crummy. And one experience I had was on a route called Middlefinger. And it looks like one just popping right out of the earth on, uh, in South Carolina. And it, um, I got, it's 5'7", and I got on this thing, and there was just horrifyingly amounts of loose, loose rock. And I didn't touch any of it. So I was grabbing the little tiny crimps, and stuff like that, and I probably, I turned this 5.7 into about a 10D because I was trying to avoid the crap so so much, and there are other times where I'm pretty sure it's okay, but I don't like to deal with pretty sure Um, and so there'll be some times where I'll kind of start dead pointing so the gentle art of dead pointing is when you don't make a big lunge, but you just pull and you have this moment of weightlessness so what happens is I'm only fully engaged with my full body weight when I've got both hands on and I would float and so that moment of one handedness I actually because of the the dead point the way you utilize your momentum I was only on that handhold with a smaller percentage of my body weight that way if one of them blew out on me um, I had the other hand for redundancy and I might have then had to make a much harder move but that was kind of planned for in the, uh, the potential. And generally, I just try really, really hard to avoid anywhere that has crummy rock. What else we got? Do you have any new areas that are on your list to explore and potentially solo? The Red's a big place. So I've been looking all over the Red, trying to find places that are good for soloing. Um, I'm having trouble finding ones that have top outs, so as soon as I find some of those, I'm going to develop some circuits and what have you. Uh, I've also been working a lot at Devil's Lake. I'm thinking about maybe going up to Nesita. I've also got some unfinished business down in the southeast at like Foster Falls, Tennessee Wall, and uh, in Little River Canyon, particularly this area called the Concave. But I'm also looking at going out to like Joshua Tree, Red Rocks, and um, Yosemite to try and repeat some of the cool stuff that other soloists have done out there and um, like in uh, El Dorado Canyon like Naked Edge, um, Yosemite, things like uh, Separate Reality. I'm actually, I'm ready to do that one. I just need to get myself out to California and do it. You're gonna get back out of the nose. Yeah, so uh, I actually had a, a very Pointed statement that I will never get back on the nose big wall style. Um, Big wall style is when you're taking multiple days to climb this thing and sleeping on ledges and all that. The reason being, it's kind of Disneyland up there. While there is no such thing as an inexperienced party on the nose, it is the easiest route of the style on El Cap. And it's the most famous one which makes it tremendously popular. So there's actually people lining up to climb it every morning. And when we went to go climb it, there were three dudes illegally camped at the base of the pitch, and we quietly stepped over them so that we could rack up first and have priority in line. And by the time I finished the, the, sec- the first pitch, we had six people lined up behind us waiting to go. And that just, I was already pissed off before I fell. And because none of that is good time to me. So I would like to go back to the nose, but I want to do it with a partner who's willing to try for it in a day. That would be a good time for me. I would try something, I'm not ruling Big Wall out entirely. Uh, I would go do something like the Salathe, Big Wall style, because it doesn't have the crowds and the congestion. Yeah. Yeah. What else do we got? How hard has it got to be before you tie your shoes? (laughs) So yeah, I've been well known for climbing stuff with my shoes untied. Um, so I've got this raggedy pair of mythos that has just seen too many things. And, um, it's not a set thing basically it's got to be hard and overhung and I really care about precision so like in the case of that one route uh, a lot of times like I'll put my downturn shoes on because I need that little boost of faith to get me up the wall Uh, and I kind of like the fact that I don't believe in myself because it kind of keeps me from doing bad things Uh, because if I can overcome my own self-doubts then that means I've Probably got more safety margin planned than I actually need, so that's kind of comforting to know. Um, so, a lot of routes, I'll boot up with the chalk and like my nasty shoes and get ready to go do it. And like halfway up the thing, I'm just like, dude, I do not need these uncomfortable things to climb this. And so, like the next time, I'll come back and do it without. Um, but if I'm on sighting anything 511 and higher, then I'll definitely slip them on just because of the unknown factor. Uh, some 510s I'll have to slip on the serious shoes, unless it's like a crack climb, in which case those untied dudes actually are my serious shoes because they're really good for crack. Um, and then, you know, I have soloed up to 12B with my shoes untied. And uh, I, I say that that says more about the route than it does about me, because uh, see these things right here? Um, at Stone Summit Atlanta, the hardest climb, their, their wall is like this and it's 60 foot tall. The hardest graded route that I ever sent at Stone Summit Atlanta was 513 minus. They do the same plus minus grading like what we've got going on in here right now. And I sent that route in these. Now, there were 511s there that I could not have done in these shoes. But the way that route was set, the smallest foothold, it was all like big slopers and stuff. And so the smallest foothold on it was the size of a softball. So the shoe you're wearing just really doesn't matter. And um, if the shoe you're wearing really doesn't matter, I'd really rather be comfortable uh, than any other option. (laughs) Yeah, that uh, that actually started off because I uh, was a broke college student and... I knew that the Mythos, when I resole them, are going to fit really, really well. And if I resole my downturn shoe, they're just never quite the same again. So to preserve my Mythos, or sorry, to preserve my downturn shoe, I just wore the Mythos for everything until I really, 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 really needed that one to try and save money. And I just got so used to climbing in those Mythos that, like, they're home to me now. Thank you, Raisin. Yeah, um, so what's going through your mind when you decide you're going to back down Yeah, so like in that particular one, I had dialed it in with a rope, and I knew a couple things. I knew that it was only 5'7 up that crack, and then a short little V3 boulder problem to get into that position. And what you were dealing with is it was a big dead point to like a three-finger bucket, and there were three crimps. And you pick two of them and launch. And when I had a rope on, that felt very, very casual. And I kind of had it in my head that if this thing, I got up there and I decided it sucked, I knew that I could reverse off. And so I got up there, and like I said, I want the ability to screw things up a little bit and still be okay. And when I got up on those small holds, I realized that if I botched that big move, uh, like with Dreamscape, the one in the beginning with the big launches and all that stuff, I had screwed those moves up. It was a big hold that I was launching from. So if I missed, I could just come back down to the big hold, contemplate life, try again. No big deal. Um, but on this one, those launching holds were so poor that I knew that I wouldn't be able to recover if I botched it. And I wasn't hundred and forty percent sure that I could stick it. You know, I was like, I could probably do that. And as soon as the word probably comes in there, that also means probably not, or possibly not, at least, and that's that's unacceptable. You know, I've done several hundred pitches solo at this point and intend to do several thousand, so if there's any possibility that I think it's not going to stick, that's just unacceptable. It would have caught up to me by now. Uh, there's this great quote from Mike Reardon, who's probably uh, my favorite soloist out there. It says, any idiot can get lucky once second time's a solo. And so what I get from that is if you're not at least willing to turn around and do it again, then you got away with it. You know, if you come down from something thinking, there's no way I'm going to solo that again, then you got away with something and you can only get away with so much in one lifetime. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So when I lived in the southeast, I had a friend of mine from Colorado who was coming to visit, and he asked me, you know, hey, what are the best 511 minuses around there? And so I went, uh, I had a good list in my head, but, you know, it was kind of a dinghy. My memory is like a sieve and things fall out of it, so I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any. So I got on mountain project for the region and sorted for the most popular climbs. And when I did that, my entire free soloing resume floated to the top. Well, that's interesting. So I did the same thing for Joshua Tree. All of a sudden, it's the resume of John Backer and Mike Reardon. Sorted for Vegas. Now it's Honnold and Backer. When I looked at the most popular stuff in Yosemite, It was stuff that Peter Croft, Alex Honnold, Dean Potter, John Backer had soloed. So there seems to be this crossover between roots that are extremely popular and that make good solos. So in the Southeast, everything I was finding was primarily from years of experience, from living there for five years uh, and just hearing the word on the street, having friends that knew what I was on about and they would recommend good climbs for me. When I came up here, I was a stranger in a strange land. I didn't know where to look for the good stuff, and it's kind of weird asking people that don't uh, entirely trust what you're doing yet, and so I remembered that trick of sorting for most popular, and so I went on mountain project for the Red River Gorge and sorted for most popular, and Twinkie was the top of the list. And so that was the first one I went to go check out, and lo and behold, it actually suited the style quite well. And then Check Your Grip, I think, was the third one on the list. Um, Bedival Pipeline, I just stumbled across because Sam showed it to me. Same thing with Knuckle Sauce, And Banana Hammock is like a new classic over in Miller Fork that's become really popular. So that, that's basically where it came from, was just doing that same search all over again in a new place, trying to get the logistics expedited. Actually, we, it's happened a lot of times, so I used to keep it real under wraps when I was back down in Texas. I didn't like talking about it too much because, you know, everybody on the internet forums likes to say, oh, you're just doing it for the attention. Well, usually when you're, especially when you're getting started out, the attention is you are an idiot. What do you think you're doing? You're just a narcissist for doing this. Well, no, i everybody's talking to me like that. So if you're doing it for that, you're not going to be doing it for very long. Um, And so, but there was one day out at Sand Rock, Alabama, where I got branded with the hat photo, if y'all remember that one. And I was like three quarters of the way up, one of my favorite 510s, and I kind of stopped to enjoy the view. And I looked down, and there were like 15 people from the gym. holy crap, the cat's out of the bag now, and so for like the next two weeks, every time I went to the gym, holy crap, are you that guy? Hat kind of gives it away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, depends, what'd that guy do? And yeah, at that point, it was out of the bag, and it wasn't going back in, and the popular roots are popular for a reason. I like them for the same reasons that everybody else does, and so it's pretty common that people are around. Um, when Twinkie happened, it's really interesting. There was a When I get excited about something, I have a hard, I have a hard time shutting up about it. Uh, a little bit of a uh, psychological defect there. And so a lot of folks from around here knew that it was coming up and that it was going to happen. And some people knew that I was bringing Bones down there with me that weekend to film it. And when we were talking in Miguel's the night before, a bunch of folks from Chicago... Um, They were like, oh, crap, you're going to do that tomorrow? And they actually changed their plan, and they came out to Fantasia just to watch. (laughs) So I had about half a dozen people uh, down there watching me do it. And when Bones and I, we were like, oh, yeah, we'll be back in 15 minutes. We're going to go rig the rope real quick. An hour and a half later, we finally rappelled from the top of the thing because we got so lost up there. And as we were rappelling down, two guys were about a third of the way up because they were getting ready to project it. And it was like, oh, hey, oh, uh, mm, hey, what are you, oh, we're doing this, um, hey. And we carefully negotiated, and they said, and I was like, hey, would y'all mind letting me do this real quick? Um, I'll hang the draws for you after I'm done. How about that? And they were like, yeah, sure, cool, whatever. And so uh, they lowered off and cleaned their draws off the wall, and they sat there and watched. And so I went and sat, I put my headphones in and got in my zone and sat down, and then um, slipped my climbing shoes on and went and did the route and then walked back around. And one of those guys that had walked up and was on the route, he said, hey, uh, how'd your shoes feel? And I was like, my shoes? I, I felt fine. Why? Because those weren't your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Those are my shoes, man. You've got a pair of blue acros, right? Yeah. Yeah, I left mine sitting at the bottom of the root, and you put them on and jog straight up. <laughs> so I ended up, and I remember sitting at the base of the root, putting these shoes on, and I, I look at the toe, and I'm like, wow, I've really blown these things out. <laughs> <laughs> and just didn't think anything of it. Yeah, and it's like, "Wow, well, all right, well, that sucks. <laughs> Climb the root. <laughs> and... um but, yeah, there have been other times when, you know, you feel the vibe. If people are not chill with it, you don't want to ruin someone's day by giving them, like, an anxiety attack. And so if there's a huge crowd, then I'll try to go walk off somewhere else. Or um, at uh, in the southeast, after doing it for a few years, instead of people being like, Oh, my God, there's some guy free soloing, it turned into, right, it's that dude again. All right. And so I was able to go around and kind of do what I wanted with no fuss. And so um, in Devil's Lake, they have a long heritage of people having free soloed out there. And so people know that it's a thing. They just didn't know that it was coming right here today. And um, I also have this uh, chalk bag full of Snickers. It's shaped like a puppy dog. And it's full of Snickers. And so um, that's my bartering chip. If somebody is getting kind of anxiety and whatnot, I will throw a Snickers at them. <laughs> and at this point, they are confused instead of anxious. And that greatly improves the situation. I'll also, uh, I'll also use this. I'll be out on like my big multi-pitch days where you've got the famous one-hand photo. And I'm running around climbing stuff. And you know sometimes people will be at a belay ledge and you can't quite see them. And I'll pop over this belay ledge. Oh, hey, what are you doing here? Uh, I'm climbing. What are what are you guys doing here? They're like, uh, we're climbing to, where is your, hey, guys, want a Snickers? <laughs> and they're like, uh, e- e- sure. I was like, all right, cool, here's the Snickers. Do you mind if I pass through? N- no. And then there I go with my untied shoes and I'm, so, uh, and these people now, everybody needs the story of this one time they met some crazy bastard. <laughs> and I'm proud to be of service. <laughs> Is there any has there ever been something that you wanted to solo that you just turned out? Style climbing or- well, I mean, there was that one in the video um, just now. I've actually got two examples of that from recent history. Um, if anybody knows Military Wall out at the Red, uh, there's what they call the 512 Wall, and there's three classic 512s there. Uh, you have, the two in question here are Gung-Ho and Tissue Tiger. And I was so excited. I was sitting up there, you know, doing take and feeling the moves out, and I actually um, I top-rope soloed both of them with the Grigri so that I could spend, like, a while... Rehearsing these moves without um, being taken into the police for blair abuse. Um, and I found a really secure way to do the moves. But when I got up there from the ground, it just wasn't going. Um, and there's also a route called Tomsuba in Little River Canyon. Real popular. And when I got up there, there was one move that was extremely insecure and had a really terrible hold on it and um, it didn't pass the smell test you know as soon as the word probably enters the calculation game over and that's um, another good one was uh, when the first time I went to Tennessee Wall I was trying to just see how much I could on-site solo and the problem with Tennessee wall is it is an unbroken linear cliff line there is no walk off whatsoever so what i did was i was trying to find a down climb and i'd put in all kinds of research on what climbs i could try and which ones would be good solos because i'm really good at hand cracks and stuff like that so i was all jazzed up to just get some serious mileage and that morning i came in and started climbing and all the roots are about 100 feet tall and so I kept trying to climb up a route the whole while, keeping in my head, like, if this goes sideways, I'm going to need a way to down climb. And so I'd get to some move where I'm like, I commit to this. That's going to be horrible to down climb, which means this route cannot serve as my down climb from my circuit, and I would just bail right then. And that happened to me about eight times that day, so I spent the whole day getting halfway up stuff and bailing. But um, still, so eight routes, half of them, that means I got 400 feet of climbing in that day. That's not too bad. Uh, and then when you consider the, yeah, because the up and the down both. <laughs> there was actually a great story from Peter Croft. He uh, went soloing in Yosemite one day and he was on some route that was sustained, multi-pitch, just gently overhung, just very barely, except the last pitch was kind of slabbed over. And right when he got up there, it was a 1,000-foot route. And a 100 feet from the top, it started raining. And so that upper slab was slicked off. And so he down climbed all 900 feet. And somebody uh, in the interview was like, man, was that a big bummer that you didn't get to climb that route? And he was like, oh, man, are you kidding? I went out that morning planning to climb a 1,000 feet. But instead, I got to do 1,800. So it happens a lot that I wind up bailing on stuff for various reasons. Um, And sometimes, you know, you don't have to commit to the whole route. Like there's a a 10B called Julia that's 500 feet, and it's a double corner system. The other corner is a 5'6". So you might get to a section where you're like, I can't reverse this move. But there's a ledge 20 feet later where you can walk over to the 5'6". And so that gives you a lot of creative options for bailing. Like, all day long, I'm thinking, all right, how can I bail out of this thing? Because that's just the way you've got to think. You've got to keep your options open. And there are some routes that I solo that, like, I can't bail from. Like, reversing off of Twinkie, that'd be heinous. Reversing off of Banana Hammock would be extremely heinous. Um, But I've got those routes dialed in so well that I know that there is absolutely no chance that I will need to bail off of it, even if several things do go wrong, because I've tried deliberately to climb them in the worst conditions possible with extra stuff hanging off of me. Um, And so, you know, all that stuff hanging off me and the terrible conditions are like deliberately making things go wrong. And so if I can make a bunch of things deliberately go wrong and it still feels chill then we're, that, that's what passes the smell test. That's kind of um, been the way that I do things traditionally. Would you, um, would you consider, like, a, a, a dyno where you actually left the rock for, you know, half Ooh. a second, like, kind of, you know, not pass the smell test then? Because, it would depend. Yeah. It would depend greatly on what I was launching to and what I was launching from, but I will say that there is a much, much much lower chance that that kind of move would pass the smell test. Um, In one of those clips up there, y'all saw this move where I went, and my feet left the rock. I had actually dialed in a static and secure way to do that. And it was a very strenuous right hand lock off on this thin slot. And when I was up there in the moment, My body just took over and popped for it, and it was extremely casual, but um, that wasn't in the plan, and it actually wound up being better beta. So sometimes things happen where my body has a better idea than I do, and you just wind up going with it. What's your favorite solo, if you had to pick one? Mm. You know, 512's cool and all. But I really like being up in high places. Um, And I'd say my favorite solo is Built to Tilt. So that route is 10B. And it is 300 feet tall. And it's one of those routes that just, it makes you feel cooler than you are. and. No matter what kind of climber you are, I highly recommend it. Even if you're a sport climber, I would recommend learning trad just to do this route. Come on, let's see if this photo is in here. yeah there we go come on computer yeah so that's that's the one and if you That is a body... You see, there's my untied shoelace. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, no chalk, untied shoes. So that was in the middle of the day where I did 5,700 vertical feet of climbing. So That was about 2,500 feet in. And you can see that is a full body-length roof, 300 feet off the ground. So if you've ever been in a climbing gym and uh, you've found that stereotypical boulder problem where you have a flat roof with the biggest jugs you've ever grabbed onto, and you reach out the roof and flip your heel around to a heel hook on the biggest jug that you've ever heel hooked, and then you pull out on even bigger jugs, copy and paste that 300 feet up, and you've pretty much got it. Um, and the thing is... To get there, you see this pedestal? You can reach into the crack from that pedestal. And you can sit there all day to fiddle your piece of gear in. And to get to that pedestal, you have to go up this crack right here. So you're in this 5'9 crack, where you're just kung fu kicking in a karate chop and like getting up this thing, and it has got it's not just an overhung crack, it's got these slots in it. So you've actually got really bomber handholds. And then you barrel roll into the crack. You stand on the pedestal, and this is the crux. The crux is standing on this pedestal, contemplating life. <laughs> I really need to put some gear in. Hey, man, you got me? Yeah. I've had you the whole time. Yeah. Right. Right. I knew. I knew that. Let me. Let me put another piece in. <laughs> Holy crap! I'm up here. I need to extend that. I don't want to. I don't want to get rope drag. Hey, man. You. Uh, you know this is the crux, right? Yeah. We discussed this four days ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh. And then you grab the jugs and you pull into it, and you're just like, ah, oh, uh, oh, gee, really? That's all it was? Oh my god! And so it—it's um, this wonderful thing where the—the the most like psychologically difficult thing isn't actually the climbing; it's standing on that pedestal because you're kicking up this thing and doing this route, and then you're like in full-blown hero mode, and then you're just standing there in zero mode. <laughs> and you've got to immediately flip that switch right back to hero mode to pull out this roof at 300 feet. So from hero to zero, straight back to hero again, and it's just, I don't know another route out there that makes you do that. And that, um, I've done it six or 10 times, and uh, it never gets old. Can you talk about, terribly (laughs) Um, I actually I have had climbing trips where the whole bargain was listen man you make the food I'll handle the climbing (laughs) and um, when actually when I go out climbing I get in just such a zone where I don't know if it's that I don't get hungry or if I just don't feel the hunger or what But I'll go the entire climbing day without digging through snacks or food or anything. I'll have a lot of liquids, particularly Gatorade, to get that little bit of sugar in me. Um, And I might have some snacks and stuff that I grab. Like on that mile day, snacks were pretty important. But when I'm in go mode and I'm really going long and hard on something... Um, putting down a whole meal just it doesn't feel well to me so I have a lot of different fuels and snacks and it was pretty much the same thing like at 36 hours of horseshoe hell where mostly it was just a bunch of feel-good snacks Um, because what feels good oftentimes is a lot more important than what is good uh, when you're in those conditions and the other thing is gummies no matter how terrible you feel gummies are always yummy, and so we had. Um, I almost had a, a severe ejection of uh, previously processed food matter because <laughs> uh, we were in. Uh, I had this drink that had carbohydrates and protein and all this scientitious things in it, and I was chugging that out of a. And um, I guess it didn't have any fiber. <laughs> Twenty-two hours. Into the 24-hour thing, I'm sitting there on I'm sitting there on this 5'8", just out of my mind because I can't feel my fingertips at this point. I've got you know 310 pitches underneath me, and I'm just sitting there. And I make a move, and I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I hear from down below, "Yeah, man, come on, you've got it." <laughs> Don't understand. <laughs> and so I had to make a move. <laughs> make a move. And I felt so horrible when I got down from that root, like deep down in my stomach, horrible that I couldn't eat anything. And as I was sitting there feeling miserable, some individual was like, hey, you want this? And fed me a gummy. And I was like, oh my God, sweet manna from heaven. So uh, the next year when we came back, because apparently I'm too stupid to have learned after the first time, we came back to do that heinous thing all over again. And I had a whole backpack full of gummies and it was just, "Mm, yeah. Uh, But in that case when the morning came around somebody was distributing burritos like instead of having a magic snickers fairy with his shoes untied there was a magic burrito fairy that was sweet manna from heaven at about that point so it's not until you've gone for like quite a while that you flip the switch from like snacks to oh my god a solid meal of stuff is desperately needed right now but there's a time and place for both of them but for the, uh, the solid meal thing to be worth it, I have to have been in go mode for quite a long time. Let's practice awkward silence. <laughs> so, do uh, we have any more questions or is that kind of wrapping it up at this point? Do you repeat the Twinkie the second day because the first day the camera died, right? Well, yeah. So we actually had a um, we had a GoPro clipped on the wall at the top, and because it took us an hour and a half to walk around and get lost, uh, it died. It died. Yeah. So I actually came back the next day and soloed Twinkie a second time. So you had to do it twice. Partially because I wanted to, and partially because the I kind of wanted to, but the camera gave me a really good excuse to. Okay. Because you know like I said, I do like to repeat them you know any idiot can get lucky once and the uh, the second time on it felt significantly better than the first time, and so like that root satisfaction I was talking about at Foster Falls, the first time I sold it, I was like chalked up, I was like doing severe like warm up practices, I had my serious shoes on you know sacrifice a goat, fly with the ravens, be spiritual and um <laughs> set up off the thing and then i've soloed that thing eight times and each time i've soloed it i've actually dialed in my beta better uh that's kind of messed up i guess and so it's gotten more and more casual each time and now i'll come up and solo it no chalk for my warm-up with my shoes untied and so uh, to me that's kind of the hallmark of soloing done right is that when you come back and do it the second time it feels even, first, the first lap feels more casual than you expected it to, and then the second lap feels more casual than that, and then the third even more, and so on. Yeah, that's Alex Honnold's favorite statistic whenever they're interviewing him. Yeah, as he likes to point out that, you know, people have died soloing. But nobody has ever died soloing their hard thing at their limit. And there is kind of a a thing where you start to get complacent and it starts to get easier. But like uh, with these things, like with that one in particular, It's 512. It gets more and more casual, but you can't actually get casual like off in La La Land where you're starting to forget about stuff. Um, But uh, for me, I haven't found... I think maybe the headphones help with this a little bit because it's some kind of background chatter that helps drown out my own background chatter. And so when I'm out doing easy days of soloing... um, instead of like drifting off and thinking about whatever, instead that process will kind of latch onto the music and I'm still like in the vibe with the movement. So um, hopefully I'm doing something right to isolate myself against that. But uh, in those particular cases, it's not getting that casual yet. Is it the same as you go to the time or you have different stuff? Yeah, so I've actually got a Spotify playlist that's public called uh, Heavy Mellow and um it's stuff that's kind of got that heavy big airy feel to it but it's still got like a mellow tempo and it kind of i think uh alex honnell always listens to like punk rock and i think that's because he's so mellow that he needs something to amp him up a little bit whereas i'm already so um energized that i need something to kind of mellow me out a bit and then i've also got a, a playlist called big bad wolf that was my angry screw the world playlist after i got injured that i was using to keep me stoked up after that and so if it's been if i'm out on a long day and i'm just like i can't take this mellow stuff anymore then i'll flip it over to that uh that uh, particular playlist and on the mile day at the very end of it i flipped it over to the big bad wolf playlist and have you all ever heard uh, that song freaks by timmy Trumpet? It's that one where he's sitting there going, the bass and the tweeters make the speakers go to war. And that came on. The last route that I did that day was actually the first route that I ever climbed at Linville Gorge. It's a route called Paradise Alley that goes at 5'8 And I was like, boom, 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 making moves in tempo with the music, screaming the lyrics at the top of my voice. And then I pop over this ledge and there's two guys staring at me You want a Snickers? <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea what they were thinking about this maniac charging up this roof, root singing Timmy trumpet. So it does change a little bit, and uh, but I've got all my playlists on Spotify. It has a feature where you can download them to your phone. That way, when I'm in places with no cell signal, I'll still get to uh, listen to tunes. It's the last time you watch that shirt. You're always... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this this shirt, when I was at Devil's Lake this summer, um, I was wearing this shirt a couple couple times just because I liked the joke. And then I was at Devil's Lake soloing and speaking to the crowds thing. Somebody was like, oh, hey, you're that guy. You were here last weekend. I recognized the shirt. (laughs) Oh, this could be useful. <laughs> Cause there was like three year span in the southeast where people were just like, oh my god. which was kind of a buzzkill. Um, so I'm sitting here like, man, maybe I could use this to like expedite the desensitization process. Because <laughs> the red does not have a heritage of soloing. People are not expecting that to be anywhere around there. So I've kind of turned this into my uniform, and I'll wear it every weekend that I go climbing. And so the first thing I do when I get home on Sunday is I'll throw it in the washing machine <laughs> to make sure it's ready for the next weekend. And so every time I go out there soloing, it's the hat and the shirt and the jeans. It's just kind of the uniform. And um, it's already gotten to the point where people are recognizing me at, like, crags and the parking lot, and I actually got spotted once at a gas station in, Illinois- in uh, Indiana. <laughs> you might need back... Uh- Set in case, you know, I've crazy. actually been thinking that because this one's starting to get a hole in it where yeah. my bird's been pecking at it. I have a pet bird. She's a little sun conure. Uh, basically a six-inch tall rainbow chicken. <laughs> the only time she's actually camouflaged is when I'm wearing this shirt. <laughs> and she, uh, her favorite thing to do is just to burrow down in there. And if I'm leaning forward like this, there's like a little kangaroo pouch. I'll just go boom. And uh, birds like to entertain themselves by pecking things apart, and so my uh, shirt kind of becomes a victim. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, pretty soon here, you can see the words are starting to wear out on it and stuff. This actually started because so I'm from Texas, right? And um, when I was in high school, some friends of mine went college shopping, and they w- they went to Austin, Texas, to go college shopping, and I get this fu- this called. What is your shirt size? What's it matter? Answer the question. All right, fine. Medium. They show up a few days later with this shirt that says, Keep Austin Weird. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is a thing now. And um, so what it is, it's from Austin, Texas. It's a support your local business campaign. Keep Austin Weird, keep it local. Uh, But for me, it's um, less of a call to action, more of a warning label. I keep myself weird. And I just figure people should be warned about that, or else I'll throw a Snickers at them. (laughs) Well, cool. I think that was a properly lengthy, awkward silence. Uh, (laughs) Seems like we're out of questions here. So... That about wraps it up. Cheers, everybody, and happy climbing. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. Um, I hope you all had as much fun listening to that as I did presenting it. This opportunity truly was an honor, and I hope it gives you a little bit of insight as to where I've come from as a climber and how I go about my business in the vertical. As they say... You can't really know where you're going until you understand where you've been. Uh, That wraps it up for today's broadcast through the Ethernet. And as always, remember that life is an inherently dangerous sport. So do try to be safe out there. But if for some reason you find yourself incapable of doing that, be careful.